You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. Welcome to Leaders and Legends. My name is Chris Spangle, uh, taking on Robert Vane. Robert Vane will be our guest for this episode, and we're so lucky to have him on this episode. Uh, we'll talk about that just in a moment, but first we want to thank our sponsors for this episode. Uh, this is a podcast presented by Veterans Strategies and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at the Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Uh, I am turning the tables on this episode for your Leaders and Legends host, Robert Vane. Uh, Robert, thank you for joining us here on this episode of your podcast. For free. <laughs> well, I guess I'm paying you. You're paying me, yes. I will send you an invoice for this. Uh, this was a lot of work. You know, I had to clean up the dining room table to, to for an, an accomplished guest such as yourself. Well, I have mentioned your name on the podcast uh, a few times and also have told people in private conversation there would be no Leaders and Legends podcast without Chris Spangle. He's been incredibly uh, generous. He's been a good friend for a while, but I can honestly say that I really enjoy the time that we spend together doing this, and you have been a terrific, terrific mentor to me in the world of podcasting in general and sort of in brand development and PR specifically. So before you uh, put me on the grill, let me just thank you so that everyone knows how important you are to this podcast. So you can send your hate mail to uh, Rob Kendall. <laughs> Rob Kendall. Yes, thank you. And it's been a great project for me. Uh, and you've been a great mentor to me, uh, especially in sharing our history nerddom. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been a podcasting person for about 10 years and host my own show and work for Bob and Tom. And What's uh, the name of your podcast? We Are Libertarians. And uh, I am uh, a featured guest. Uh, a bit player on episode 23 of this podcast, if you want to go back and listen to me may make fun of Rob Kendall a lot. And uh, so we, we actually met through Abdul. I was Abdul's producer for a while, and that's how we met. And then we got reconnected at the LA Fitness at Southport. That's correct. You play racquetball, and you said, hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. And uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to, love to talk. And that's sort of how this got the ball rolling about a year ago. I may have sweated more on Abdul's show than I do at the gym. <laughs> just, just because of Jen Wagner. Yes, just because of Jen Wagner, whom we all love and deservedly. So we had a lot of fun. That was Abdul 1.0, and he has reinvented himself and, and honestly needs to come on the podcast when the time is right. He and I have talked about it, and we'd love to have him on. He's, he's a very courageous political observer. And a pain in the ass and uh, another one of my mentors. So uh, so that's just a little background of who I am. So you don't you're like, who's this strange person? Uh, and I said to Robert, 
we need to have an episode where we interview you. I think after how many episodes have there been? Uh, let's take a look here. We've recorded almost 50 at this point. And I said, I think the audience would want to hear about Robert Vane and who Robert Vane is and what his development was and what are his answers to the five questions. And that's why we are here today. So let's start where we sort of start with every one of the guests. Where did you grow up? I'm not sure if I know where you grew up. (laughs) Well, I grew up in the greatest neighborhood in the world, otherwise known as Irvington on the east side. It was a magical place to grow up in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I went to four IPS schools after a one-year stint at Our Lady of Lords, and graduated from Howe High School in 86. I relatively immediately left uh, to join the United States Army after being called a pussy by my own mother, who was in the <laughs> Marine Corps, and that's a true story. And if you're an Eastsider and you're hearing this story, just ask Mike Johnson, who drove me to the MEP station, who witnessed the uh, great... Uh, pumping up of me as I was about to serve my country. I did three years in the military, came back, got a couple of college degrees at IEPUI, which was really starting to take off at that time. They were spending some money and and really retaining some great faculty. I had wonderful professors there. I did a double major in history and political science and was going to get a master's degree and a PhD in history and American history in the Civil War. I actually was going to study night blindness among uh, Confederate soldiers who uh, typically did really poor in the morning and really poor in the evening because of the construction of their diet. It was lacking in beta carotene. And I had a professor, a mentor who was going to take me through that. He ended up retiring. He walked me down the hall about three doors and said, hey, Vane, meet Cutler. You're the only two Republicans in this building. (laughs) That's a true story. Yeah. And uh, ended up doing a master's degree in medieval history, uh, 14th and 15th century English history with a wonderful, wonderful man named Ken Cutler at IPUI. And then embarked on various political hackery jobs and culminating really into the astounding victory of Greg Ballard in 2007 and being his deputy chief of staff and comms director. I started my company, Veteran Strategies, a veteran business in 2010 and really was looking forward to a new way to market myself, market my business, and uh, through the wonderful uh, suggestion of Rachel Coverdale of Coverdale Consulting, whose husband, Tom Coverdale, was a podcast guest. We started this podcast uh, through your help, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. Yeah, so let's jump back to your childhood, because uh, I can't imagine growing up with two Marines for parents. Uh, what was that like? Were you in trouble a lot? Was it very strict? I mean, how, was how formational was that for you? Was in terms of their military experience and your childhood? Well, they were divorced from each other twice. Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I mean, what's the odds that two Marines are going to get along with anyone, let alone themselves? <laughs> Did you hear that, Mayor Ballard? And uh, <laughs> you know, I had a great. I mean, we grew up with nothing. But I have no complaints. I had a terrific childhood. I mean, growing up in the 70s and 80s, I just can't imagine anything that was better. I think in the war uh, among different generational categories, whether it's boomers and millennials or gen this or gen that, you know, those of us who grew up 
with uh, big wheels and MTV. We're the happy people. Gen X seems to be particularly uh, just kind of pleasant, and you have sort of have a devil may care attitude about things. Well, you know, we what had do you attribute that to we had Prince, <laughs> and we had uh, the Cosby Show, and so many entities were at their peak in the eighties. Uh, there's a great book by David Frum called about the seventies. And it says the Dick, the decade that made everything right. It's a terrific book and I recommend it, but you know, the eighties we had Ronald Reagan, the Berlin wall fell. Um, we had, you can't understand unless you grew up in that time, how important MTV was to, you know, life Why? as a teenager. You went home and you turned on MTV and you did homework. You got to see artists uh, perform. It was this the cultural hub of certainly the United States, if not the world. And why in the hell they stopped showing videos is beyond me. All right, now you're tiptoeing into old man territory. Well, I just, I mean, why wouldn't you rather, I'd rather watch Duran Duran or Van Halen or Prince or Tom Petty as opposed to, you know, six teenagers complaining about their complexion in some house. (laughs) Who the hell wants to watch that? Of everyone I may have met in life, I've never met anyone who is more proud of their school system, their high school than you. Why is that? What is it about how high school and Irvington and IPS, what what makes you such a, uh, why, why is that so prideful for you? Eastsiders are the least judgmental people I've ever met. I can think of a maybe a handful, like a legitimate handful, five, six people who, friends of mine whose parents had college degrees. Hmm. We were all working class, lower middle class or middle class. Um, you know, I never owned, we never owned a home growing up. Uh, there were years we didn't have a car. I remember taking a cab to the grocery store. Uh, it's just the sorts of things that Eastsiders did. We're a, we're a, I hate to say we're a people, like we're Albanians or some <laughs> sort of thing, but, but we are. And, and we stick with each other through thick and thin. And it was incredibly, the imprint it left on me has helped me greatly not only to understand we're not all going to look alike, we're not all going to think alike, and we're certainly not all going to act alike, but I guarantee you I could pull uh, five in, uh, Eastsiders into this uh, studio here at Spangle World Headquarters, and there would be much, much more we would all agree on and laugh about than wanting to fight about the latest controversy yeah. that's hit social media Um I just have never met a group of people. I've had really three real cohorts of friends, Eastsiders, people I served with in the military, and political folks. And and they all have their strengths, and, and I'm incredibly blessed. But you know, if I had to choose a group of people to hang out with on a weekend, even though I don't drink alcohol, uh, I'd choose Eastsiders every time. Why do you think there's that level of cohesiveness amongst – as you call it, the working class. I mean, that that feeling of community, is that something that is unique to maybe that economic strata? Well, you know, one of the things when the first time I sat down with Louis Farabee, who was superintendent of IPS, and he and I had lunch before I ever started working for him, and we were talking about how much IPS has changed. And I can't speak to uh, the near north side or the near south side or the west side, but you can pretty much trace the uh, 
cratering of IPS in the early uh, 2000s, and it's made it tremendous strides since then, um, to the collapse of the industrial base on the east side of Indianapolis. Hmm. All those working class jobs, which which my friends' parents had and which so many of my friends thought they would have, they're all gone. International Harvester, Chrysler, Ford, Ryerson Steel, Paper Art, Naval Avionics, to a certain extent, Fort Ben Harrison, Western Electric. Those jobs just don't exist anymore. And it's incredibly unfortunate that a significant aspect of post-World War II middle-class life has been eliminated. And when those jobs started to go and those families started to move, that's when you saw IPS take a completely different turn from its peak in the late 60s, really through kind of the mid to late 80s. What are some of the values that you grew up around that may be missing now because of the diaspora of that working class? You know, it's one of the things we talk about on the Leaders and Legends podcast. One of the things I wanted to do in starting the podcast is talk to people who were there when certain things happened. And so much of what I learned on the East Side or growing up with with two parents who've never voted for the same person ever, although my mother's last words to me, she died December 17th, 2008, literally, other than saying I love you. My mother's last words were, quote, I finally lived long enough to vote for a Republican. I voted for Mitch Daniels. Hmm. Close quote. She told me she loved me. That's the last thing she ever said to me. <laughs> My father wouldn't have voted for a Democrat if his children were dangling over a fiery pit. <laughs> <laughs> and we had that sort of diversity, and that's one of the things that the East Side – and it's not just the east side. Obviously, I'm a homer. But but the east side, especially the four years at Howe, I started there in September of 82, graduated in June of 86. There was not a single racial incident in the four years I was in high school. Mm. There were fights. There were confrontations. There were problems. Um, I didn't hear most of them because I was in the library. But those things were there. Not a single – I don't remember a single racial incident. What were we fighting about? We were all the same people just because one person was black. Dalen Jenkins was black and Charlie Ewells was white. They were the best of friends and still are to this day. Right. We just we just didn't have those issues. I think people were just happier back then. Yeah. You, you talk a lot about in your development. What, well, let's say that for college years. Let's go on to the military because you went on to the military next. Uh, tell us a little bit about your service, what you did, and where you were stationed, and and uh, just kind of a, give a general overview, please. So I joined the military for two reasons. One, it was it's certainly a um, tradition in my family. My both my parents were in the Marine Corps. I had at least three uncles in the Navy, another uncle in the Marine Corps. My brother was in the Army. My other brother Jimmy, or excuse my other brother Michael. My brother Jimmy was in the Army. My other brother Michael was in the Air National Guard. Uh, various other uh, iterations of military. So there's the tradition. And, and military service tends to run in families. Yeah, You see a lot of them, and then you don't see hardly any. And that was one, and A, that was A. And then B, I just said there's no way in hell I could have afforded college without it. I mean, zero chance. Matter of fact, my father said, I'm not giving you any money for college <laughs> unless you join the military. 
and then he gave me hardly any money anyway. Was that because it was formational for him and he thought it'd be good for you? Like, what was his reasoning for that? Why did he want you to go into the military so badly? One of the things about getting through basic training is just getting through basic training. I mean, you prove yourself. I never cursed in front of my father, and he never allowed me to curse in front of him until I got out of basic training. It's like, you're a man now. Mm. You can do that. It's okay for you to say, you know, blank this or blank him. But you don't – it's a rite of passage. It's the greatest decision I ever made. Why? Well, the next time we're someplace and uh, we're at a convention or a a group of people and the speaker says, all of you who served in the United States military, please stand and be recognized. I get to stand. Right. Why is that important to you? Because of the incredibly low number of people who actually serve. I believe there should be a draft. And you either get drafted into AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps, the Marine Corps, or the military. There has to be some set of service to your country. And that is something that, quite frankly, has been lost. There are so many good Eastsiders, people I grew up with. I won't. I can't name them all, but I can name a ton of them. Lee Wilhelm, Dean Johnson, D.J. Waterman, David Vespo. The list goes on and on. David Ligon, who white and black, we all had the same economic situation, all joined for different reasons. Scott Kale, who wanted to come on. Danny Adair, who joined the military. And it's just something that we all share. So if we're ever together somewhere... We tend to gravitate toward each other. I had a television show. I was hardly a warrior. My son, <laughs> my son, who's done two tours in Afghanistan, he's the warrior. Right. But, you know, that was the job that the recruiter pushed me toward because he saw me on the brain game and said, hey, you can do that in TV. And I'm like, answer questions? Or you can do that in the military. And I go, what, like answer questions? He goes, no, be on TV. And uh, that's it, – it, it didn't really propel me towards anything in my career, even though I do public relations, but it was still – a. It was a phenomenal time. I really, really enjoyed it. So you did communications. You say that doesn't that doesn't translate now? No. Really? <laughs> I know that it's the camera tilts up, <laughs> pans left or right. Isn't that right? Yeah. 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 And zooms in and out. Okay. And you know, I got to interview a couple of really cool people. Scott Crossfeld. Um, if you know who Cross uh, Scott Crossfeld, he's the first man to fly twice the speed of sound. Mm. So that, that, but, but, you know, other than there's nothing really that translated direct. I just simply got lucky and got into PR through the graces of Jennifer Hollowell at the Indiana Republican Party. I too am a history major at IUPUI, a forthcoming degree, hopefully one day. Um, <laughs> Pace uh, yourself. Yeah, I'm, you know, going on that 18th year. Um, yeah, but you're still 28. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, that makes up for advocating for the draft in this libertarian household of mine. Um, I, I loved studying history at IUPUI, and uh, you and I have definitely bonded over history. I'm an absolute history nut, grew up going to St. Augustine, Florida, and that's the genesis of my history nutdom. Um, anybody who has spent more than five minutes with Robert Vane knows that some obscure political flat fact will fly out of his mouth. Uh, before this, we 
recorded a podcast uh, on Bobby Fischer and the history of chess, and he knew it better than the expert who wrote a book. Like he, I would have loved to have seen uh, that gentleman. What was his name? Uh, Edmonds, Dave Edmonds. He was uh, in London when yeah. we did the podcast. And uh, throughout the 50 episodes, you hear Robert kind of using his historical knowledge and his love for history to kind of ask questions that a lot of other people don't ask. When did you fall in love with history and how important has the study of history been to your life thus far? The first book I read was The Golden Book of World War II. I was was not yet in kindergarten. I just happened to be at the library. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks can't stand history. And I feel sorry for them, (laughs) quite frankly, because it, it is so instructive in both behavior and patterns and human nature. You cannot be a good writer if you are not a reader. And there are so many great stories, so many great people. Um, I mean, I don't know how many books I've read, but I've not even scratched the surface. I'm lucky enough to uh, have found several different historical genres and and time periods that, that I like. And a lot of it just depends on on a good book that had come out. But there, it's safe to say there are some folks on the east side who went a different way. And, and I'm convinced that my love of reading helped keep me out of trouble. Mm-hmm. As someone who literally uh, used to take collect calls from his friends from prison so they could <laughs> talk to their girlfriends on a three-way call back in the 90s. That's a true story, and I'm proud of it because that's what Eastsiders do. And if I hadn't found that love, then certainly I wouldn't be anywhere near the position that I'm in now or having had the experiences or the career. It doesn't mean I would have been selling crack. It just means that that propelled me to something. Uh, Plus, quite frankly, when you don't really have any skills (laughs) – from a trade perspective, uh, my ex-wife, uh, Candace's husband, Rob Connor, another terrific Eastsider, he can fix a rainy day. And he'll laugh that, that, that my kids, his stepkids, get the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. They can history nerd out with me if they want, but then go figure out how to change oil in a truck if they hang out with him. Right. And if you don't have certain skills, you need to make the best of what you have. And that was what I did. History has kind of been a social lubricant for you and some very important people over the course of your career, hasn't it? Well, I never would have had the friendship I had with P.E. without a shared love of history. P.E. McAllister. Who passed away recently, and it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, P.E. is a big philanthropist here in Indianapolis and so many different – I was at uh, Garfield Park, I believe – the amphitheater there, McAllister Amphitheater. He started the park. Generous. He started the Parks Foundation. He was president of the Capital Improvement Board when the Colts came from Baltimore. We talked about that a little bit in our David Frick uh, podcast. Um, he's everything that you could possibly want in a person, and was until his passing, he was the only source of undiluted joy in my life, and I'll never get over it. 
Can you talk a little bit, uh, if you want to talk about this, the Byzantine nature of Obandonism? So that was <laughs> the speech. That story to that our was, audience? So uh, I was working for State Auditor Connie Noss, and uh, P.E. McAllister was head of a local uh, uh, Republican fundraising organization, and she was given a speech topic. She was um, speaking at a luncheon. And that was the speech topic, the Byzantine nature of Obanonism. And when I read it, I was like, wow, that's something you don't read every day. And um, <laughs> Obanonism was referring to then Governor Frank Obanon. And so uh, the auditor didn't know what Byzantine meant. And I said, well, I was just out of graduate school. And I said, it means this. And she says, well, I said, well, why don't I write about that? And you can write about Obanon and we'll push it together. And then in one of the few... Um, moments of of time where we were out together the auditor says hey come to the lunch i introduced myself to pe quite uh, timidly and said i'd love to have lunch with you my thesis director he and i hang out half dozen or more times a year and just talk about history i don't know if you ever get to talk about these things but we'd love for you to join us and he was very gracious and said call priscilla who was his assistant priscilla dick and uh, that was thousands of lunches ago and that that day that day is a watershed moment along with the birth of my kids that I've ever experienced. No friendship with P.E. McAllister, no job at the Indiana Republican Party as communications director, no job as uh, communications director, no association with Greg Ballard. And it's all because of P.E. just being kind. And one of the things that I learned from him, perhaps a little too late, was there's no harm in just being kind. So you said he was instrumental in uh, helping you get the job at the Indiana Republican Party. Why is that? Because he refused to write his annual contribution check, which I'm sure was probably in the range of $50,000, until he had received assurance from the uh, people at the Republican Party who were asking him for money that I was going to receive this job that I had applied for, for which I had no experience and, quite frankly, didn't deserve. And he just wouldn't write the check until the conversation went from, yeah, you know, we got a lot of really good candidates and we've talked to Robert and, you know, we, but we've got a lot of people we want to talk to. That's how the conversation started. <laughs> and when it was clear that the checkbook was not going to be opened, it pretty much ended with, yeah, he's terrific and, you know, we think he'd be a great addition. So I give my uh, former boss, uh, uh, Chairman Murray Clark, at least the uh, credit for being uh, aware. <laughs> and the, the story is the story is Marty Opes, who now works for the vice president. But the story was uh, Marty, who I didn't know on my very first day of work at the Republican Party, came up to me and says, I don't know who the hell you are, but I need to. <laughs> yeah, that'll get attention uh, pretty quick. Um, well, had you worked uh, – so I first became aware of you because uh, I don't know if any of you listeners know, but we have a television star as well. Uh, you starred in a PBS documentary. Yeah, We the People. Uh, we the People about the Marion County Clerk's Office and vote counting. I have a DVD copy of it if you'd like to autograph it before you leave. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about and, and what that was like? Well – Marion County Clerk Doris Ann Sadler was the star. And what year what year? And deservedly so. I'm pretty sure it was the presidential election of two thousand four, which at the time was the busiest election in the history of Indianapolis, surpassed in two thousand eight because of Barack Obama's candidacy. Um, 
as the busiest election. I'm not exactly sure. I think it was through Doris Ann. They had maybe someone else had someone who wanted to do a documentary on basically elections. It was four years after Florida and and Bush v. Gore. And they were terrific. And and Doris Ann did a wonderful job. And she got a lot of credit for that, went around the country. And and she should have. She is a incredibly, incredibly bright and wonderful friend who took an absolute beating for reasons that had nothing to do with what was really terrific leadership. And, and Doris Ann, we had a lot of problems with the elections. We ended up suing our vendor, mm. whom we hadn't selected, but we ended up suing them and winning. But we were in the crosshairs of the media and and the Democrats. And I don't blame the Democrats. That's what you do when you're in politics. Or the media, because there were issues. Doris Ann Sadler never, ever, ever scapegoated her staff, blamed her staff, fired people. And there were people who were wanting me fired. Personally, you have to fire Robert. Someone has to go. He runs the elections. There are problems. Get rid of him. And if those people had succeeded, I never would have had the opportunities that I would have, that I eventually had. But I'm so loyal to her and so incredibly fond of her, not only because of who she is, but also because she stood up for her people like an East Sider would do. Mm. So did you then go to the state Republican Party after, after working there? May of 2006. Okay. So how long were you there? Till October of 2007, um, I left a week before Greg Ballard won. Okay. It's, it was a great job. I mean, it was absolutely – there's terrific, terrific people who work in politics uh, regardless of how they vote. And to have a chance to work at the Indiana Republican Party was a real dream. You were – and what was your role there? Hater. <laughs> professional Jen Wagner puncher, uh, verbally puncher. Yes, yes, and we became friends very quickly. Uh, and it's so funny because... It was like Waldorf and Statler on Abdul's show in the morning. You two would come in and just light the phones up. It was so much fun because you two were just... she, Jen Wagner, maybe talk about her for a moment, but she's so gifted and such a great communicator. It had to be intimidating going up against her on like these Abdul appearances to, to take her on. Well, she's... I used to refer to her as the Princess of Darkness, <laughs> a title which at the time she probably embraced, and now that she's respectable, she doesn't. You know, Jennifer Wagner is one of those folks who you're just incredibly, incredibly lucky to know. She's very, very, very bright. Um, mouthy is all hell. I loved it. Uh, we became friends very quickly, uh, not always to uh, applause from either of our sides. But, you know, growing up in a bipartisan household, it just didn't, you know. And growing up in a neighborhood of Reagan Democrats, basically, which is what the east side in Irvington was, I mean, you just, you heard different perspectives all the time. So, like, it was just like, oh, I've heard this all the time. What's the big deal? Yeah, you tend to see people first and party second. Well, I'm a liberal <laughs> arts major at an urban university. It wasn't exactly a den of Reaganites. <laughs> You know, at Kavanaugh Hall at IPUI. I was college Republicans president at IPUI in 04, and Josh Gillespie was an adjunct professor, and he, te- he taught like one class for an hour a week. He was the only Republican that we could find in the entire campus to, to be the advisor. And Josh Gillespie is a former student of mine. Yeah. And a terrific guy who became good friends with Jen. Jen was just very smart. 
The Democrats had lost in 2004, the first gubernatorial loss in 16 years. They didn't like it, as parties tend not to like it. Um, Mitch Daniels in 2006 and seven was not the Mitch Daniels in November 2008 and beyond. And they were, it was a real fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jennifer knew her stuff, and she was incredibly engaging. She was good friends with Abdul. And I'm, I'm just a very big fan. Uh, I, I guess, suppose I should take this time, though, to, to apologize because I would, she would yell at me, <laughs> not about anything regarding a position, but I would get her in trouble because I would make her laugh on the show, and then she would go back to the state party, and they'd be like, look, you can't laugh when he says these things. And so, Jennifer, I'm sorry. <laughs> that seems to be a formational job for you and, and change the, the career path that you had. Why, why, do you, why does it seem that way? I don't know if it is, but— Well, what really changed was Greg Ballard's election. That's, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what changed the lives of Ryan Vaughn, Paul Locus, and Chris Cotterell, uh, Michael Huber. And the list goes on and on. Greg Wilson. I mean, there's so many you could name. Uh, not that they weren't successful before, like especially Ryan Vaughn was elected counselor. But, but his win in seven changed the career trajectory in a way I never thought. Of. And this came out not only in the uh, podcast we did with Bart Peterson, who was extraordinarily gracious for coming on. Uh, but the one we did with uh, Paul Okuson and Michael Connor, where Michael Connor's growing up. Republicans are dominating Indianapolis. He probably thinks he's never going to work for a Democrat mayor, or at least it's going to be another 20 years before he does. Yeah. Paul Okuson becomes first chief of staff for Greg Ballard. Probably thought, oh, the Democrats are never going to lose the mayor's office. I'll never work for a Republican mayor in Indianapolis, even if I wanted to. And the Democrats in the early 2000s were such a machine in the city, even though Republicans were still winning elections like in 2002. We won all the countywides except for sheriff. And then in 2006, Brizzy carries the county for his reelect. But other than that, the victories are few and far between. But there was a tremendous collection of talent, not only administratively, but politically in the Democrat Party in 2000s, in the 2000s, whether it's O'Connor or Ed Tracy or Joel Miller or Scott Chin or Jennifer Smith-Simmons, Melina Kennedy, uh, Steve Campbell. I mean, I couldn't name them all because there's there's so many, but his Ballard's win in 2007 has unfortunately become the reference point for people who think that that sort of upset can happen all the time and it just can't. Mm-mm. So you leave the administration, you go into the private sector. Um, was it just time to go at that point, or did you want to do something different? Or did you finally want to get paid? <laughs> I mean, what was the uh, what was the reason that you initially left? I was going to I was going to kill Frank Straub. <laughs> okay, I think he's one of the worst people I've ever met. He never understood what an amazing man. Greg Ballard was. He had his own agenda. He didn't care about anybody else's. And I found him absolutely loathsome. And it it was an odd position for me to be in meetings and sticking up for cops all the time, while at the <laughs> same time, their public safety director is trashing them. And uh, clearly, it was either him or me. And he's the public safety director, and I'm the flack. Public deputy mayor of public affairs at that point. I was deputy chief of staff and communications director. Clearly, one position is more important than the other. Right. And uh, I never would have left. I would have stayed. 
but yeah. but but I give credit to Greg Ballard for hiring someone who thought outside the box, who wasn't from Indianapolis, who had a, an agenda and a resume that was spectacular. But he never understood that Greg Ballard's key to success was the fact that he could work with anyone and he looked for the best in anyone. And it doesn't always work. You're not always able to find it. And it was enormously frustrating to me. And we had a Announced the water deal that had gotten passed. The first CIB deal had gotten passed. The parking meter deal had had done. So big things had happened. And in retrospect, I would like to have stayed through the reelect in 2011. But quite frankly, I was causing problems in the administration because I, I couldn't deal with one particular person. And I have no regrets about not dealing with that one particular person at all. <laughs> so you leave, you go uh, in, into the private sector, Sheil Sexton? Sheil Sexton, an mm, incredibly um, fun place to work with terrific leaders. One of them is Brian Sullivan, who I've known my entire life. Andy Sheil, who was deceased now. Uh, Mike Diltz, Kevin Hunt, and then my particular boss, Chris Altice, I should also say, but my boss was John Andrews, a Ron Colley kid, big Seinfeld fan, Mm -hmm. and one of the best leaders I've ever met. He is a terrific, terrific person, and I'm very lucky to have him as a friend. Yeah, so you're not there very long, though. You you, uh, went back to work for Greg Ballard, did you not? Well, I was there for seven days, and on the (laughs) seventh day... uh, Greg Ballard wins the mayor's election. And I was working at Channel 8 that night with Jim Shella and Susan Williams, who was running the Sports Corp, I believe, at the time, and our good friend Toby McClamrock, one of the best people I ever meet. And I was working that night and simply couldn't believe it. We talked about that on our podcast with Jim Shella. You're, you're talking – so you left the administration – no, on two thousand November two thousand seven. I'm talking about two thousand eight. After Greg Ballard, you left the Ballard administration. You went to work somewhere else, and then didn't you go back to work for the Ballard administration? No, the, the chronology is state party till October of seven. Okay, I'm at Shield. Se- I leave there to go work at Shield Sexton. I'm there seven days. On my seventh day, Ballard wins the mayor's office. Gotcha. Okay. The following afternoon. Excuse me. The following morning, I go to county party headquarters just to say congratulations to the brilliant Tom John, the brilliant Kyle Walker, and all those folks who made that happen. John Cochran, Kurt Fulbeck. And Jim Shella is interviewing Greg Ballard. And I walk in and I'm like, how the hell did he get in here? <laughs> like he just sulfur fills the room. Yeah, well, he, the, and the answer was the answer was he just showed up with his camera and said he wanted to talk to the mayor elect. So I walked into the room and shook hands. I had seen Shella the night before because I was at Channel 8, but I really hadn't had a chance to see Greg Ballard. And Greg Ballard and I had developed a friendship, right? Uh, quite frankly, because I was the one of the handful of people who was nice to him and treated him with respect while he was running, even though I thought he was going to get lit. Uh, and then I left. And I texted somebody, and I'm not sure who it might have been Kyle Walker, and I said, this is really dangerous. <laughs> And it wasn't Kyle's fault, of course. Uh, and then I got a call. It was Wednesday. I got a call Wednesday night when I was driving home from Seal Sexton. It was Bob Grant. And Bob Grant goes, uh, Robert Vane, Bob Grant. 
I said, hey, Bob, congratulations, because he was an early backer of Ballard. He goes, we need you to come work for the transition. I said, who? He goes, Mayor Luck wants you to come do his, be his press secretary. And I said, I, Bob, I've been at Shield Section. This is my eighth day. <laughs> like, I can't leave. He goes, well, what's it going to take? And I said, have the mayor elect to call Andy Scheel. Next day, Thursday morning, Andy Scheel walked in my office. And for those of you who don't know Andy Scheel, he was a absolute. One of the worst things I've ever had to do was write his obituary. Mm. He was a dream of a man. Absolutely genuine and kind and wonderful. And he said, uh, the mayor elect just called me. They went to cathedral together. And I said, I told him, if he wants me to work for him, you got to say, okay, I can't leave here. I've been here eight days. I mean, I haven't done anything, but I've been here eight days. Well, it turns out I didn't do anything the whole year I worked there. And he says, no, I think it's okay. And so I left on that Thursday. I walked out of Shill Sexton and went to the transition headquarters and was there through the end of the year. And Shill Sexton paid my salary the whole time. Wow. That's amazing. That's the kind of people they are. Then the offer was made to come to the administration January 1, 2008. I'm like, I can't do that. That's not fair to Shill. And Shill um, had kept my job open. And then I stayed at Shill until November 10th. 2008, and that was my first day in the mayor's office. So you're extremely loyal to Greg Ballard. I, I saw him at Abdul's party once, and I said, you couldn't have a better friend than Robert Vane. What is it about Greg Ballard that elicits so much admiration from you? Well, the Army's been taking care of the Marine Corps for about 200-plus years now, <laughs> so we're used to it. You know, Greg Ballard is everyone in the world should have a chance to work for Greg Ballard or for someone like him. He lets you do your job. Uh, he's stubborn, but he's not, you know, as I like to say, uh, he's open-minded, but he's not vacant. Like, give me some options. Hey, Mayor, we've got a problem. I'll give an example. The state stopped sending kids to the Guardian's home in Irvington. They sent kids who were, for whatever reason, weren't with their parents. I grew up right across the street from it in Irvington. And so it was just going to sit empty. And I read about it and I went, oh man, this is bad news. I walked into the mayor's office and said, mayor, have you seen this? He said, no. I said, look, we can't let that building sit empty in the heart of Irvington. Like that'll just rip the guts out of the, those folks there. You can't, we got to come up with something. And Greg Ballard, without even looking up from his paper goes, well then do something. Did you? I walked down to the brilliant Kariga Roush's office in the mayor's uh, education wing uh, with the terrific staff that he had, Christy Marson, Beth Bray, and said, look, we've got to figure something out. There's a building there. What can we do in terms of education? And, and to his credit, he took it from there, and it became the Irvington Charter High School, which is a phenomenally well-performing, incredibly popular uh, high school in Irvington. But that's so typical Greg Ballard. He didn't say we couldn't do anything. He said, give me some ideas and we'll come. We'll choose whichever the best one you can come up with. That is incredibly empowering to your staff. I clearly was probably the closest person to him in the administration. Um, and I'm incredibly fortunate that I even met the man. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by... 
Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. So jumping forward in the timeline, you leave the administration. What do you do next? Is that when you start Veteran Strategies? I started Veteran Strategies. Uh, I left in November of 10 and um, went and became an entrepreneur after talking to a lot of really smart people, Al Hubbard, Michael O'Connor, Steve Campbell, Paul Locuson, and others who were out making their way. And it was really Brian Sullivan from Shield Sexton, uh, from one of the great, great Eastside families, who said, you know, you're a veteran. That's an advantage. I had no clue. Hmm. And having your own business is, is um, it's very difficult. And if anyone who's listening, who's an entrepreneur or is thinking about being an entrepreneur or going out on your own, it is... It is an ice cream headache every day, <laughs> but it, because you're constantly worrying. Yeah, right. Where are my next clients going to come from? God, have I paid my taxes? Shoot, have I answered that email? And you know, you just don't have a lot of protection. Uh, I was lucky enough to have come off the administration. On, uh, the administration was on a high. We had done the deals and the things that we had talked about earlier, and it was a good time for me to leave. Uh, and start my own business. And I got some really good contracts to begin with. And I've had some, you know, bad months. And then all of a sudden, five people are calling you in one day. I have so much respect for people who have their own business. And I almost refuse to pay for or buy things or eat places that don't represent Hoosier entrepreneurs and their hard work. So what is Veteran Strategies and what do you do? So Veteran Strategies is a public relation company. My business partner is Al Inslee. He does uh, drone and digital photography. He is a member of the Marine Corps Reserve, a former member of the Marine Corps Reserve, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I worked with his wife, the incomparable Jen Pittman, in the mayor's office. And so Veteran Strategies, we do a lot of public outreach. I do a lot of writing I do a lot of, of speech writing, which I particularly enjoy. Um, I pitch stories to reporters. I do interviews on radio. I help prep. I'm doing more business development now. People are hiring me to help them make connections. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a terrific way to make a living if you can keep it going. And that's, that's the thing that you think about at 3 in the morning. Right. But I've done some terrific uh, projects. I managed the uh, IPS referenda last year that each question passed with more than 70% of the vote. I've done uh, the Pacers deal in 2014, April, $160 million. I mean, they just said, you do it. And that's where I've been really lucky that I've had some good contracts and good clients. And when they say do it, what do they mean? Do they mean messaging? What are, what are they looking for specifically? Mostly it's strategy. So. Mm-hmm. I would want someone to hire me who who comes in. I haven't done a lot of crisis communication. Well, I've done a ton of crisis communication for, through the mayor's office, but um, none of us are Roger Harvey from <laughs> Bose Public Affairs. He's the best at crisis communications. But I've done some of it. But I want people to hire me because they have a problem and they want me to help them think it through. And some of that is involves messaging. Um, I have a client now who's in the uh, world of vaping, and I 
personally think the war on vaping is unfathomable. I don't. I completely don't get it. Although I've never tried it, and never would. It's completely overwrought in my view, because we're allowing bad actors to set the debate. We're talking about what the people are doing who are doing things illegally. That would be like letting drunk drivers set the debate on on our auto laws. And but this guy uh, is incredibly conscious. He understands that changes are coming, and he's a terrific uh, communicator. And it's a joy to work with him. So there's a messaging problem: the perception of vaping and its impact. Okay, so you're not going to come up with an operational solution to a strategic problem like that. You have to do it in terms of messaging and outreach. And those are the kind of projects I really like. I like working on projects. So that's where Leaders and Legends enters the picture. It, and I won't be bashful if your you're nice boy Catholic upbringing will make you bashful. <laughs> This podcast is all about uh, presenting veteran strategies and and uh, advertising it. So he asks knowingly, where did you get the idea for Leaders and Legends? Well, it wasn't my idea per se. Uh, Rachel Coverdale from Coverdale Consulting suggested that I start a podcast as a way to market veteran strategies and market myself in an attempt to woo new business. She Her suggestion was for me to do a podcast on sort of public relations and PR, which she didn't know me particularly well. So I got where she was coming from. And my response was, honestly, I'm not a PR pro. I'm not trained in PR. I don't have APR after my name, which is this accreditation. Um, that's not That's not where I'm trained. Now, unfortunately, where I am trained is – the Hundred Years' War, the Plantagenet <laughs> Dynasty, the, Carta, the, yeah. the Lancastrian takeover, and <laughs> and uh, those sorts of things. And that's not particularly compelling either. There are only, I guess, there are a lot of people watch Game of Thrones. So I guess I could have marketed to them. I said if I was going to do a podcast, I'd really want to be the East Side Larry King, which has always been my dream, and that's to ask questions of people who've done stuff or are doing stuff, and and get to talk to them about what it was like to be in the room when X happened or Y happened. And I'm to her credit, because Rachel deserves the credit, she immediately said, oh, my God, nobody's doing that. Yeah. Nobody's doing this. Um, my sec- Then my first call after that conversation was to Chris Bangle. And you've been incredible. It, you are the sinquanon of the <laughs> – uh, Leaders and Legends podcast. Without your expertise, I never would have been able to make it past. I never would have had episode one featuring Greg Ballard. And, you know, I have three goals of the conversation. I want Leaders and Legends podcast to be informative, entertaining, and comfortable. I want people to listen to leaders and legends because they want to hear things they've never heard before, hear stories from people they may or may not know and stories they've never heard before. And I want them to follow up and go, wow, I wonder what this person's doing now. Um, I love promoting uh, the work of the founding fathers of modern Indianapolis. And a lot of our guests kind of represent that generation. But I also want the podcast to get bigger, to be, uh, 
about things other than just geographically focused on Indianapolis and Indiana, and hopefully we can make that happen. There's a lot of amazing people in this world who are doing terrific things or have done them and now are re- enjoying retirement. And to me, it's it's those stories. It's David Frick, who worked for Mayor Hudnut, telling the story about the Colts coming here. It was an incredibly amazing story. It's Allison Melangdon, who was the chairman of the president, I think, of the Super Bowl effort in 2012, telling the story about walking away from Super Bowl headquarters into Georgia Street, where so many people gathered, and seeing a tall man walking up to that tall man she recognized and saying, Mayor Hudnut, why are you crying? Because the Super Bowl represented everything that he wanted to do for this city and that he did. It's Mitch Daniels talking to us about what he what happened on 9-11 because he was in Washington, D.C. when 9-11 happened. Then the list goes on and on, but those are some of the ones that stand out. And so I want people to be, wow, I never knew that. Wow, I hadn't heard that story. Man, I didn't know that person did that. And along with hopefully uh, generating some more business for my company, for Veteran Strategies, It's a way for me to indulge my love of history in a local context. Yeah, so what are some um, overarching values or some things that you learned through the process of of doing this show? uh, When you're talking to people, I guess, are there things that you're just like, wow, this – I never thought about it this way. What are some other moments that stand out for you? Well, a lot of what we do, and by we, I mean you and me, and of course we have – a. Danielle Shockey from the Girl Scouts is a co-host from time to time. And Dina. And Dina, so she's not a co-host, but yes, yes. An important part. We can't leave her out. That's right. And she's endured a lot of IU love (laughs) as a Purdue grad. Anyway, I want Republicans and Democrats on together talking about this is how we got things done, either way back when or this is how we're doing it now. We've had Michael O'Connor and Paul Okasent, good friends. Ed Tracy and Jim Kittle, good friends. We had John Mutz and Louis Mayhern on together. And an episode that's either going to come out after this one or may hit it before is uh, Robin Winston and Mike McDaniel on together along with Jim Shella. And, you know, the people who are involved in politics understand that these sorts of friendly relationships and constructive relationships are really are the norm. Yeah. At least here. And I'm assuming in other places. Uh, it's the folks who don't work in politics all the time who think that all Republicans and Democrats hate each other all the time. And it, it really isn't true. And I'll stick with my theory that if you want real feuds in politics, I mean, the feuds that never go away, the Irish Alzheimer's where you forget everything but a grudge. <laughs> It's within the parties. It's D's hating D's and R's hating R's. Yeah. I, I have sent this to many a libertarian friend uh, because I've just said, listen, you need to listen to the show. This is how politics actually works. It's not some life or death battle. It is people who genuinely respect each other having conversations with each other and trying to negotiate an agreement, not because they want to kill each other, but because it's the right thing to do for people. Well, remember what Louis Mayhern said in our podcast where we had he and former Lieutenant Governor John Mutz? Louis sought out a Republican with whom he thought he could work. Yeah. 
It's the complete opposite of what happens now on both parties. I mean, everyone knows that I'm a Republican, but, you know, I don't necessarily hold my party and like, you know, we're saints and the others are sinners. We we have our as, we have as Lo Bianco so viciously smeared you in piety and power, known moderate Robert Vane. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which I translate it as to someone who doesn't wake up on vibrate. <laughs> I enjoy being partisan for fun. Like with people who have a sense of humor. I say this all the time. I can get along with anybody who has a sense of humor. Yeah. Like Anything else is almost immaterial. But can you laugh at yourself? Can you laugh at others? Can you take a joke? Can you give a joke? And you know what? Not to make this the theme of this particular interview, but that's what East Siders do. We, <laughs> we, we had a saying when I was growing up and when I came out of the military and moved back to the East Side while I was in college. And I chuckle. It's the official motto of the East Side, and that is leave your feelings at the door. Yeah. You're going to get lit up, so just laugh about it. And yeah. And uh, that's one of the things that I think the podcast came through is is Republicans and Democrats, even today, those who want to work with the other side and want to get things done, uh, that can happen. It's no accident that I think it was his first commercial, but recently reelected Mayor Joe Hogsett's first or second commercial has him sitting next to Bill Hudnut. On the bench at Hudnut Commons. That's smart politics. Yeah. Do I dare ask you if you have a favorite episode or would you like to pick a couple episodes? Like if you were to recommend that when you are out and you recommend the show, like are there a couple episodes? Hey, start here. If you're interested in how Indianapolis went from being, you know, the – 59 cent can of tuna on let's make a deal to the showcase showdown listen to the david frick podcast he was involved in so many amazing things former senior deputy mayor for mayor hudnut a guy at the gym we were talking about the podcast goes well i don't know that guy why should i listen to him his and i go well he negotiated the deal to bring the colts here he negotiated the deal when the Simons bought the Pacers and kept them here because they were leaving. And he's the guy who Mitch Daniels said, why don't you build Lucas Oil Stadium for me? You just don't have someone with that level of accomplishment who's so incredibly soft-spoken and humble and self-effacing. It was pulling teeth to get him to do the podcast. <laughs> and and he was he was absolutely terrific. I loved the Tracy and Kittle one because they're clearly are such great friends. It required significant editing. Thank you, <laughs> Chairman Tracy. Uh, uh, the Bart Peterson one, you know, he didn't have to come on. Here I am working for the guy who beat him, you know, and and uh, I'm sure back in the time I was I was probably not. Uh, I was probably more of a Republican spokesman than I am now. <laughs> but his he was he was terrific. Allison Melangdon. If I could have my kids grow up to be anyone I know, it would be Allison Melangdon. She's just the greatest combination of achievement, leadership, and kindness that I've ever encountered. Uh, Governor Holcomb was incredibly fun. Eddie White was fun. <laughs> Bill Benner, Jim Shella. I mean, a lot of these people are my friends. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be good friends with a lot of them and at least uh, close friends with some of them. Uh, and that's 
one of the benefits of working in politics. I used to tell students when I talked to them when I was go speak at college when I worked for the mayor or the party or whatever. Get involved in politics. Doesn't matter how you vote. Honestly, it's been a great experience for me. I th- I always recommend the bipartisan ones, Mutz and Mayhern. Uh, my favorite hasn't aired yet as of the recording of this. Mike McDaniel, Robin Winston, and Jen Shella. Like that's that was hilarious. It was funny. Uh, I really enjoyed those. I liked um, uh, Kittle and Tracy. Uh, that one was personally just like. Wow, I'm I'm going to be around a lot of people that I formerly criticized, and I I found them to just be so much fun. And those are great episodes. Those are some of my favorites. Well, the, and one that is going to air, I believe, the first part of January is the one we did with Mike Riley, who was the head of yeah. the Robert Kennedy campaign in Indiana in '68. And as a history guy, I mean, it was just mesmerizing. I mean, I love talking to people who were in the room. Tell me about what happened in the room. And that's one of the best uh, byproducts of the podcast is to learn things. We did a podcast with Mike Riley. He talks about RFK's speech at Notre Dame, which was Robert Kennedy's first speech after he declared and then he decided to run in the Indiana primary. I think I have this chronology correct. A week later, we did a podcast with Michael Browning, which hasn't aired yet, where Michael Browning talks about – I ask him because Riley had – talk to us already. Mike, you were at Notre Dame. Were you at Notre Dame for the Kennedy speech? And and Browning tells the story of how not only was he there for the speech, but because he had an internship at a Chrysler dealership, he got the car. He procured the car that Kennedy rode in to go back and forth from the speech and that the, the car got so damaged by people wanting to touch Kennedy that he didn't think that the car was going to get taken back. He thought I was going to go like he says. I thought I was going to have to buy this car. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the things about this uh, podcast, which is so fun. Um, The last thing I'll say before we move on is my favorite story or coincidence of the podcast easily. Mark Miles talking with Fidel Castro and Fidel Castro wearing pajamas (laughs) is pretty good. But the fact that Mitch Daniels and Terry Curry had the exact same first concert is pretty tripped out. Yeah. Love and Spoonful and the Association at Clues Hall was Terry Curry's first concert, and it was Mitch Daniels' first concert. And they didn't know each other, obviously, and they were there at the same time. And that's the kind of trivial nuggets that I just live off of. Yeah. I, I have known almost none of these people. Uh, and the one that I loved the most was Sally Rowland. That's the one I've shared more than any other um, because I just found her to be so awe-inspiring. I mean, are there people that you just were like – I didn't have know total, her. Do you have a totally different view of them after you go and talk with them for an hour? I know most of these clowns, so no. <laughs> uh, I did not – Sally Rowland is the only person with whom we've done the podcast who I had met previously. And okay. she was a – what, just a – Dynamite. Oh, so funny. Yeah. Um Great sense of humor, terrific. Uh, the one we did with Sarah Evans Barker, which hasn't aired yet, she was another person. She was terrific. Um, you know, I, there is value in being seen as someone who is reasonable. And part of my branding, self-branding, is I'm a proud Republican. Everybody knows it. I've worked in Republican administrations. 
I've been the Republican on TV and radio shows. Uh, I've worked for the Indiana Republican Party twice. And I don't hide it. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm very proud of it. And I, I have some terrific friendships on that side of the aisle because of it. But you can't be someone who creates a branding of toxicity. And I want to be known as the person, and I'm very proud of being known as the person who Democrats can call and say, hey, let's work together on this. Or, hey, can you let me? Can you give me the phone number to this Republican state senator because I want to help him on something? And I enjoy being that conduit. And I think if it was not for having that sort of reputation and brand, Barb Peterson doesn't come on. Yeah. Maggie Lewis doesn't come on. Terry Curry doesn't come on and others. And so, you know, there is – there is a value in just being reasonable. It doesn't mean you're disloyal. It just means you're reasonable. And some of my best thinking has happened because I've had really good conversations with Democrats who, who don't believe as I believe. So final question before we move on to the obligatory five questions. What does the future hold? What are you, um, you know, part of what I said to you is like, hey, we got to talk to the audience more. I know there's people out there listening. There's hundreds of people listening. So what is the future of Leaders and Legends and, and the project as a whole? Well, I want to continue it. And, and, you know, part of continuing it means growing it outside of its uh, current iteration. I want to talk to more people, ask more questions. We've got a terrific lineup of podcasts recorded that are not yet posted and a strong list of people who say they will come on when we can just get it on the calendar. And that's, I probably shouldn't mention their name just in case, you know, it falls through, but uh, I want to do more media members. I want to do more sports. I've done a lot of uh, government and politics because that's kind of my nest. I'd like to talk to some authors about their books and, uh, but you know what, can we get a big name? Who's your guest? I mean, I suppose Mitch Daniels is pretty damn good, <laughs> but, and he's going to allow us to come back as Rob is Kendall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the Pope of, is it Hendricks County? <laughs> Brownsburg. We don't claim him in Plainfield. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, Jeff Smolian came on, hasn't been posted yet. I mean, this guy has done. He invented the concept of sports talk radio. He talks about it on the podcast. And so, you know, are there people I'd like to have on who are, are, are bigger names? Of course. And we're going to ask them. All they can do is say no. But there's that aspect of it. Uh, at the same time, um, we need to have a work on how we deliver it, make it more uh, listener friendly. We want people to visit leadersandlegends.fireside.fm. There's a listener survey. Please complete that. Promise it won't take much time so we can come up with better guests. Or not better guests, but but larger-than-life guests and guests that that represent the content you want to hear. Yeah, and part of that is that you tell us what you like, what you don't like, you know, a little bit about yourself, because not really sure who we're talking to, so we want to make it more two-way. Uh, join our Facebook group. Uh, you can email me through the uh, fireside.fm uh, website and give me suggestions. I've had quite a few suggestions. Some of them uh, are Eastsiders who want to come on and talk about their uh, Christian Park baseball career. <laughs> the hell with that. Uh, but maybe, but maybe. Uh, 
add me on social media. I post these uh, Facebook, excuse me, I post these podcasts every Monday morning on Facebook and get a terrific response. And I'm very, very grateful. People's time is very valuable, whether it's making money, sleeping, working, parenting, or just trying not to be driven insane by modern society. And a lot of people share the show, and I'm very grateful. Christy Avery, <laughs> in particular, she's wonderful. But, you know, share the show and look for more announcements and a different platform, and and let's think about ways to grow this together. One of the ideas is to, you know, create a dialogue where people are comfortable. And I said this before, I want people to listen to my podcast for an hour and go, I didn't know that, or wow, that was interesting, or or a combination of all that says, you know what, that was an hour well spent. There was no yelling, there was no screaming, there was no controversy, there was no drama. There was Mark Miles talking about what it was like to deal with Fidel Castro, leave that, and take a job where he has to deal with John McEnroe, (laughs) which is what he did. It's Greg Ballard when asked what your first concert was, shocking the entire world by answering Sly and the Family Stone. <laughs> I, I, he could he could have said Do you think he danced? I think he was drunk. <laughs> we can confirm that. But those are the kind of things that are just it's just fun to know. I mean, people's time is valuable, as I said, and they're looking for an escape. And hopefully Leaders and Legends in the podcast is it gives them a, an escape to to learn and laugh and have a good time yeah and one thing i'll say about sharing uh you got to support the culture that you want to see uh, and so support leaders and legends so on to the five questions uh i don't i don't know i hear these all the time and i don't know how i'd answer them do you have definitive answers for these or, or are you just still like man i don't know what the everybody kind of struggles with these a little bit are you are you in that camp even though you've asked them a hundred well the, literally 50 times well the first two are factual <laughs> and and the last three are our opinion. Uh, we don't give them out ahead of time. Although Holcomb, Governor Holcomb, and Governor Daniels did get them because I'm not an idiot. Uh, and if we ever got to do, you know, who's your David Lee Roth or who's your Bob Greasy or who's your John Mellencamp, and they wanted the questions, we would we would. But everyone else is everyone else is on the hook. And part of the fun is watching them try to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it's enjoyable to watch them try to go, well, I don't know. Let me think. What was my first concert? So there's a there's a aspect of spontaneity that I want to keep in the podcast, which is why the questions aren't known. All right. So here it is. First job. Making pizzas and strombolis at Pasquale's at Washington <laughs> and Arlington. You did grow up in a working class neighborhood if you worked at Pasquale's. I, I lived about five blocks, six blocks away, and I started when I was 15, and I would walk home by myself after getting off work at one in the morning on a Saturday night. <laughs> now, if you want to know how society has changed, that's a microcosm for you. First concert. Van Halen uh, with Sammy Hagar, because I didn't go any concerts when I was in high school. In El Paso and the OU812 tour. And it's one of the greatest decisions I've made because there's very, very few things better than live music. And it's something I get to enjoy with my kids. Sammy or uh, David Lee Roth, what's your opinion? The first six albums are better than the four albums with Sammy, but the, the voice isn't in question. 
But you know what? I mean, I'd watch Charles Manson sing as long as Eddie's playing. <laughs> if you could recommend any book to people, what would it be? Which is, I think, universally the hardest question. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree? That or who to have dinner with. I mean, folks seem to like really struggle. I mean, readers on yeah. the on the book question. The book I consistently recommend to people, including yesterday at lunch, is called The President's Club. And if you want to read a book that's really kind of in theme and keeping with the Leaders and Legends podcast, read this book. It's by Michael Duffy and Nancy Gibbs, I believe. And the book details how ex-presidents get along with their successors. And... You will be warmed by it. And there's a lot of really good stories involving how folks just got along because only a few people can understand what it's like to be president of the United States. And those are the folks who came before you. You will enjoy it. Not very long, but full of really good stories, terrifically written. I tell you, that's two people I'd love to have on the podcast. If you could witness any event in history, what would it be? From a personal level, it would be the moment my parents met. Hi, Anna. This is John. Hi, John. This is Anna. That would be interesting. From a historical perspective, I mean, like everyone else, it's, there's, <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you be on the moon when the moon landing happened? But I would say there's – I'm fascinated when, when historical figures, when colossal historical figures come together. And in, in American history, the penultimate example of that, of two individuals coming together, is the surrender at Appomattox, when Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia to Ulysses S. Grant, um, two titans of that war, and to see them come together and how Grant treated the Confederate Army how Grant treated Lee and continued to treat Lee uh, even afterward. It's one of those moments that just doesn't happen very often in history, especially in American history. And it didn't do much in the long run to foster uh, better relations between the sections, but you had two incredible leaders, incredible generals, coming together in the same room at the same time. And it I could only imagine the emotions that were flowing through. If you could have dinner with any living person, who would it be? Has anyone said Abdul? <laughs> Abdul. <laughs> he would be proud of that. Not even Sharon would say Abdul at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, two hours, we could watch Blazing Saddles for sure. <laughs> It would be really, really difficult to turn down a dinner with George W. Bush, not only because of of his time as president, but I know for a fact he is a monster history buff. And so to be able to talk to a man who made history, who so loves history, would be impossible. He, and, and he appears to be such an incredibly kind and self-effacing and genuine person. And if you don't believe me, ask Michelle Obama. You could be the new Ellen. 
I would be very happy. And you know what? Just, uh, we had Shelly Fitzgerald on, and we I made fun, said you never would have made it on Ellen if it wasn't for Leaders and Legends. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, well, this has been a pleasure, and it has it has been truly formative for me, and it has been great to get to know you so much better over this past year and to talk about many different things and to meet the incredible list of people that I never would have gotten to meet had it not been for uh, you involving me in this project. And I speak for everybody when I just say that this has been a great learning experience for the listeners and, you know, Robert is Robert is able to get this massive list of people because he is just genuinely kind and nice and a great guy. And I hope that uh, you got a chance to learn a little bit more about him. So, Robert, thank you so much for joining us on your podcast. Thank you for allowing me to pay you to host my podcast. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us here on Leaders and Legends. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com that's Robert at VeteranStrategies.com.